Before we get into God's word, I just want to reiterate who we are as a church, what our mission is. We talk about reaching the lost. That's something we want to be a part of here at Northwest Chapel. You guys have done that historically. We want to continue in that. We want to be intentional about reaching the lost. And so next month and the months to come, we're going to be um, setting up outreaches. I'm looking at talking to nursing homes and different things like that. So we're going to be reaching the lost. Secondly, we want to help believers grow. The Bible says it's not enough just to reach people for Christ. We want to teach them. We want to help them grow in their intimacy with God. And then, of course, serve one another because the Bible says we all have spiritual gifts and we all are equipped to serve God. And then finally, reproduce. Uh, this is probably the area that a lot of churches struggle in is believers discipling other believers. You know, that's normal Christianity, but a lot of Christians never get to a point in their life where they're discipling other people, churches planting other churches. And so reach, grow, serve, reproduce. And what we're going to do is offer four classes that correspond to each one of those statements. So reach, we're going to offer class 101. That's going to equip you on how to reach out to the lost. And then, of course, grow, we're going to offer class 201. That's going to be a, these are all one-shot classes. They're probably about two hours. And uh, we're going to be looking at how you can grow in your walk with God. We're going to take it a little bit deeper in that class. And then reach, grow, serve. We're going to offer class 301 on how to find your gifts. And then finally 401, how to disciple others. Each class is a one-shot class. We'll probably offer it two or three times a year. And then, of course, in the middle there, we have Northwest Chapel class. This is a discovery class about who we are as a church it is a one-shot class that lasts about an hour, lets you know how you become a member. And so what we want to do is get all of you around the baseball diamond. We want to get all of you around the bases. And again, let me say this. You can go through all these classes and be no more a follower of Jesus Christ, same with me, unless you apply what you know, right? You can go through the classes and be a more educated Christian, but that doesn't mean you're, you're a more effective disciple. And so this is kind of where we're headed. And so we want to encourage you uh, to attend these classes as we offer them. And uh, let's see what God is going to do and uh, be in prayer. Years ago, I went to the Columbia Zoo. Yesterday, I actually went to the Columbus Zoo. It's a wonderful zoo. I went to Columbia, South Carolina Zoo. And we were walking around and I came across this plant called the pitcher plant. Now, the pitcher plant, as it was giving a description of it, said that one of the ways that it att attracts its food is through its bright colors and its smells. And what happens is the insect or the bug ends up getting attracted to the colors and the smells, and it goes inside this particular plant. And what the plant does is once the victim is inside, it has these hairs that turn downward. And once the hairs turn downward, the insect cannot get out, and it traps its prey, and it eats it. Well, that's an apt illustration for temptation. You know, often we are drawn by the colors and the smells of the world, the flesh, and the devil. All three of those means often tempt us in our Christian life. Now, as a Christian, you're going to be tempted. You're never going to reach a point in your experience as a Christian where you'll never be tempted. The Bible doesn't teach entire sanctification where... You will never struggle in your Christian life, and you'll never get to a point where you reach sinless perfection. So you will struggle. In fact, I've had Christians over the years ask me, well, 
Why am I struggling so much? Is this normal? And the answer is yes. Paul talks about in Romans 7, there is this battle that goes on between the flesh and the spirit, and we don't do the things that we know we need to do, and the things that we ought to avoid doing, we end up doing. And so if you're not struggling, you're not living the Christian life. Now, if I was to ask you this morning, what are your top three temptations, what would you say? What are your top three temptations? Well, the Bible makes it very clear that God wants us to be victorious over temptation. And, you know, we often talk about pride, talk about greed, gossip, lust. Those are the big sins. But you know what? One of them that we don't often talk about in the American church that we don't see as a temptation, and that is the temptation to be complacent, the temptation to be spiritually lazy. In fact, I would say that this temptation has gripped the American church because, by and large, most churches in America are spiritually lethargic. People aren't pressing into God. They're not walking with God. What they do is they come to church on Sunday, they fulfill their spiritual checkbox, and then they go home. But the Bible says that you and I are called to press into God. Maybe that's a temptation this morning that you've given into. You're spiritually complacent. You're here because it's tradition, it's habit, but are you really pursuing God like you should be? Well, this morning I want to talk about in part two on how to be victorious over temptation. So turn, if you will, to James chapter 1. We're looking specifically at verses 13 through 18 as we go through the book of James. This is part two. And rather than move on in the text, what I thought I'd do this morning is give you some practical things as to how you and I can overcome temptation. Now, remember, James was writing to a group of Jewish Christians. Many of them were scattered, and many of them were going through suffering and temptation. And so in verses 2 through 12, he deals with the subject of trials, and now beginning in verse 13 through 18, he deals with the subject of temptation. How can you and I overcome temptation? Let me review the four points that we looked at last week from the text as to how to be victorious over temptation. First of all, I noted for you in verse 13 that we can expect temptation. Temptation is inevitable. We're going to experience it. Secondly, I noted for you that we're not to blame God for our temptations in verse 13. And in verse 16 through 18, God is not the source of temptation. We are the source of temptation. And that's point number three, recognize the true source of temptation in verse 14. And that is temptation often comes from our fallen nature. It comes from the world system. It comes from the devil. But James says here, it comes from our fallen nature in verse 14. And then finally, I noted for you last week out of the text that we're to understand the process of temptation in verses 14 and 15. There is a process that takes place when you and I are tempted. If you want to get the specifics on that, you can listen to last week's message. Now for this morning, I want to look at a fifth principle if we're going to be victorious over temptation, and that is this. We must use the biblical means to overcome temptation. We must use the biblical means that God has provided to overcome temptation. Now, in order to find out what these means are, we have to look at other portions of Scripture. And so what I'm going to do is violate everything I was taught in seminary this morning. They tell you, don't have more than three or four points. I'm going to give you 13 this morning. Now, we're going to go through them very, very quickly because I don't want to turn this into a long series. I want to get through the book of James. But what are some principles to help us overcome temptation? Most of you know these principles. The problem for all of us, including myself, is not the knowledge of it. It's the application of it. And I'm making an assumption when I give you these principles. These principles will only work 
if you are a committed Christian. If you're not committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, these principles really are irrelevant in your life because they only are effective to the degree that you are surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. And none of us are perfectly surrendered, but if we're not walking with God as the consistent pattern of our life, we're not going to be victorious over temptation. So what are the principles this morning? First of all, if you and I are going to be victorious over temptation, we must remember that we have power over sin. We must remember that we have power over sin. Notice, if you will, verse 11 of Romans chapter 6. Paul says this, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. Notice he says that we are to count ourselves, we are to reckon ourselves as dead to sin. You say, well, Mike, I'm not dead to sin. I mean, sin is fully alive in my life. When he says that we're dead to sin, he's not saying you're not going to be tempted. He's not saying you're going to not be unresponsive to sin. He's saying that sin's power has been broken in your life. You need to reckon that as true. And that's why he says in verse 14, for sin shall no longer be your master. Why? Because listen, prior to salvation, the old master controlled you. You were under the reigning monarch of sin prior to salvation, but watch what happened. At salvation, that old master was dethroned, and Jesus Christ is now on the throne of your life. Therefore, he says, reckon it to be true that I'm dead to sin, and that sin shall no longer be my master. You say, well, how can that be? Because the old you at salvation was crucified with Jesus Christ. Paul makes that very clear in the book of Romans that the old you, the moment you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the old man was crucified with Christ. When he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When Christ arose, the Bible says you arose as a new creation in Jesus Christ. So we have died with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, we've been raised with Christ. In fact, water baptism pictures that spiritual reality. And now that I've been crucified with Christ, raised with Christ, the Bible says now I have resurrection power, and I therefore have the power in Christ Jesus to say no to sin, to say no to the old man, because the old man has been crucified. I was reading a story about a woman who was raised in the deep south. She married her high school sweetheart, and they had a great marriage, and um, he ended up having a heart attack and dying. And so she didn't want to part from him visually. So what she did was she had him embalmed, she put him in a glass case, and she put him on the inside of her front door so that when she would walk in, whenever she went out, she would walk in and see her husband embalmed in this glass case sitting on a chair, and she would walk in and say, hi, John, and she'd go about her business. Well, one day she wanted to change the scenery, so she ended up traveling to Europe for a couple of months, and while she was there, she met another man who was from America, and they struck up a conversation, they had an instant connection, and they had a whirlwind romance, and they ended up getting married. And they came back to her house in the south, in that plantation, but she forgot to tell him about John in the glass case. And so he picks her up to bring her into the house as his new bride, and his mouth drops when he sees this particular man embalmed in this case. And he says, who is that? And she said, oh, that's, that's my old husband. He puts her down. He goes outside. He digs a hole. And he buries John, case and all, in the hole. You see, the old man died. And the old man 
ended up being buried. The Bible says that you and I were crucified with Christ. The old you died, was buried, and the new you has now resurrection power. That's why you and I are dead to sin but alive unto Jesus Christ. And so listen, we cannot use the excuse anymore, myself included, well, I couldn't help myself. No, we have the power in Jesus Christ to say no to sin. And so remember that you have victory over sin. There's a second principle that you and I should employ, and that is this. No one quote the Bible. No one quote the Bible. Notice, if you will, Matthew chapter 4. This is the classic passage on Jesus' temptation with the devil in the wilderness. God was testing Jesus, but the devil was tempting Jesus. It says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, he had human need. And by the way, Satan will attack you at your point of need. Satan will attack you at your appetites. Satan knows what your weaknesses are. Jesus was vulnerable. Satan knows when you're vulnerable. He knows exactly how to come at you. And notice the tempter came and said, the Greek says, not if you are the son of God, but since you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But notice Jesus' response. He quotes the Bible. He says, it is written. And then he quotes the book of Deuteronomy. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. This was probably in a vision that this happened. Since you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And notice what Satan does here. Satan almost mocks Jesus. He says, Jesus, you, you're quoting scripture. I can quote scripture too. And you know what Satan does? Quotes the book of Psalms. And he says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will, you will not strike your foot against a stone. He misquoted this verse. And so Jesus responds to the devil. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then one final temptation, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and sh showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. He showed him all the kingdoms in this vision. And he says, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Notice three times Jesus takes the word, the Old Testament, and he uses the sword of the Spirit in order to combat the lies of the devil. And so here's a second principle when you and I deal with temptation. We got to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, Ephesians chapter 6, and we use that to combat the devil. Because here's what quoting the scripture does. Knowing and quoting the Bible exposes the lies of the devil. Because the devil, he'll even use scripture to justify what he wants to accomplish in our life. But as Christians, we got to know the word of God. We got to quote the scripture. Why? Because not only does it expose what Satan's trying to do in our life, but it gives us perspective when dealing with the temptation. Now, sometimes you have to quote the scripture over and over and over again. Why? Because you are besieged with temptation. And I don't know about you, but in my life, sometimes I don't quote the Bible. You know why? Because I'm spiritually lazy. Sometimes I'm just lazy. I don't want to do it. Now, sometimes we need to verbally quote it. There are other times we quote it in our mind. Most of you know Chuck Swindoll, who's a great preacher. He pastors in Texas. Swindoll tells a story in one of his books of how he used the Word of God to help him combat temptation. He was speaking at a conference, and he was in the lobby and decided to retire to his room one evening, and he went on the elevator. And as the elevator was climbing, 
The elevator stopped and two women came on and they both had been partying. And so he sat there and when the elevator finally dinged and the girls were going to get off, they turned around and they said to Chuck Swindoll, they said, hey, we're, we're going to a party. Would you like to come and have some fun with us? He said the first thing that came to his mind was not his wife, was not his children, was not his ministry. He said the first thing that came to his mind was Galatians chapter 6, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And he said to them, no, thank you, and they left. You see, knowing the word of God, quoting the word of God helps us expose the lies of the devil so that you and I can be victorious over temptation. There's a third principle that the Bible teaches us if we're going to overcome temptation, and that is prayer, prayer. Matthew chapter 26, notice verse 40 through 41. It says, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Now, remember, this is after the Passover meal, the night before Jesus died. Jesus was praying. He was going through an, an intense struggle as he was getting ready to go through the cross, and he wanted the disciples to support him during this time, but they're sleeping. And you know what? You and I would have probably been sleeping too. I know I would have been. It was probably 11, 12 o'clock at midnight. They had eaten. They were discouraged because Jesus said, I'm going to leave you. And so Jesus comes back from his intense prayer, sweating drops of blood, and he said this, could you men keep, not keep watch with me for one hour? Man, that's a, that's a rebuke. In other words, couldn't you guys stay awake and pray for at least an hour? And he asked Peter this because Peter was the leader. And then he said in verse 41, watch. In other words, be awake spiritually, be awake physically. And then notice he says, pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus knew that they were willing to pray, but they were tired and they were discouraged. But notice he says, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. Why? Because prayer gives us strength whenever we're dealing with trials in life. Whenever we're being tempted, prayer is what recharges our spiritual battery. Notice what it also says in Matthew 6. We all know this, the Lord's Prayer. In the last section, it says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In other words, Jesus is giving the Lord's Prayer, and he says, when you pray, you are to pray, God, deliver me from the temptations of the devil. Now, this verse implies that God leads us into temptation. He doesn't. James 1 says he doesn't. But what it does say is that when you and I are tempted by the devil, we need to pray, God, lead me in such a way that I am not uh, overcome by the temptations of the devil. And so prayer is another weapon that God has given us in order to defeat temptation. But you know what? If we're all honest, we all struggle with a consistent prayer life. Now, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we're to pray without ceasing. And that word without ceasing is used of a hacking cough in the Greek. <coughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. <coughs> you know when you get that little tickle in your throat and you keep hacking when you're sick? That's praying without ceasing. But too many of us have drunk the Robitussin of the world, and what happens is it is suppressed prayer in our life where we're not consistently praying. Most of us pray without ceasing. That's easy. But where we all struggle is those set times of prayer where we get, along with, get alone with God and we press into God. You see, God wants us to be people of prayer. Why? Because prayer gives us perspective. Prayer helps purify us. Prayer gives us power. It gives us strength in the midst of the temptations that we're dealing with. You saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ. 
It's a wonderful movie. I was watching a clip the other day. Do you remember that scene where Jesus at the beginning of the movie is in the garden and he's wrestling with God in prayer and he's struggling as he's crying out to God. And then finally, when Satan comes to tempt him, he finally stands up and you know the scene. He actually crushes the head of Satan as it were symbolically. That's what prayer does. Prayer enables us to overcome temptation. There's a fourth principle here whereby you and I can overcome temptation, and that is this. We need to walk wisely. We need to walk wisely. Notice, if you will, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Paul says this. Be careful, then, how you live. Some of you have the translation, walk circumspectly. Examine everything carefully. In other words, be alert with what's going on in your life. Examine everything carefully. And then he says, we're to walk not as unwise, but as wise. How do we walk in wisdom? Well, verse 16 tells us, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. But I want you to focus in on the fact that he says, walk wisely, walk circumspectly. In other words, know what's going on and make sure that you are avoiding situations where you know that you are weak. That is walking wisely. That's why the writer of Proverbs says this in chapter 27, the prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and they pay the penalty. Notice the prudent see danger. They know what's coming up. They take refuge, but the simple, the simple in the book of Proverbs refers to a naive person. They end up going headlong into the situation and they pay for it. Walking wisely means this, you and I engage in preemptive strikes. We know our weaknesses, we know our triggers, we know where we struggle and we avoid those situations. If you're a committed young person, you don't want to be alone with the opposite sex watching a movie on the couch when mom and dad are not home. Why? Is it a sin in and of itself to be alone with the opposite sex in a house if you're a teenager? It's not a sin in and of itself. But listen, if you get yourself in that situation and you're a hurricane hormone, what's going to happen? You're going to get in trouble. Why? See, because you didn't avoid that situation. For some people, I counseled a lot of guys with U-Turn for Christ. It's a ministry of Calvary Chapel. And I would do Bible studies on a regular basis with the drug guys. And I would tell them, and they've heard it a lot from us, I would say, look, when you get out of the program, which is a year and a half to two years, you cannot go back to your old stomping grounds. You cannot go back to where you used to live. You cannot hang out with the old friends that you used to hang out with. Why? Because if you do, you will surely be pulled down. You see, a person who walks wisely avoids those situations. You got to know your triggers. You got to know your weaknesses. And you got to be able to say, hey, I'm not going to do this. I remember when I was in college, I was single, I hadn't met my wife yet. I went to the gym and there was this aerobics instructor. We started talking and uh, I said, do you want to go to the track and run around the track? And so we did. And so we got to talking and she finally asked me out, which was kind of forward at the time. And I said, I'm not going out with you. She said, why? I said, because you're not a Christian. At the time, I just recommitted my life to Christ. And I knew she was a pagan. And I knew if I went out with her, I could have problems with her, not only emotionally, but physically. And so I said, nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to cut it off. Why put myself in that situation? Too often we fall into temptation because we don't walk wisely. We're not prudent. We rush headlong into situations. Preemptively avoid situations that you know you're weak in. 
There's a fifth thing in our little list that will help us overcome temptation, and that is this, deal with root causes. Deal with root causes. Proverbs 4.23 says this, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Now the heart in the Old Testament represents the inner man. It represents who you are. The heart here is not the pumping organ. The heart is the inner person. And what the writer of Proverbs is saying is you got to guard your heart. You got to watch your heart. Why? Because from the heart, everything else flows out of. Whatever's on the outside originates from the inside. And so if you want to deal with what's on the outside, you got to deal with what's on the inside. And so here's the principle. If you want to overcome temptation, one of the things you have to do is you have to deal with root causes. You have to deal with root issues. You have to deal with the source. Because if you deal with the root, you're ultimately going to deal with the fruit. And sometimes Christians keep falling into the same temptation over and over again. Why? Because they're not dealing with the root cause. Sometimes a woman, and again, I'm not making a statement here that if you've had a divorce, you're in sin, or that you're a leper, or you're a pariah if you've been divorced. Divorce happens, sometimes biblically, sometimes not. Here's the good news. God forgives divorce. And I have to say that because of my illustration. But here's a woman who's been married three, four, five times, and it could be that she just has a bad picker. I get that. But sometimes there could be root causes that she keeps picking the wrong individual because there's certain, in, certain issues in their life that they're not addressing, and if they deal with the root, they're going to deal with the fruit. Sometimes you get drug addicts. They keep going back to drugs. Why? Well, they're physically addicted, but sometimes there are issues in their past that you have to deal with in order to get to the root, in order to deal with the fruit. There was a man one time, he was coming up for prayer every Sunday after the message, he would lean at the altar, and the pastor heard him, and here's what his prayer was, oh Lord, please take away the cobwebs in my life, Lord, please take away the cobwebs in my life, and he would pray that week after week after week, the preacher got tired of it, and so he gets down off the pulpit, kneels next to this guy, and he prays a prayer, and here's what he said, oh Lord, kill the spider, In other words, deal with the root, then you deal with the fruit. There's a sixth principle in dealing with temptation. Reflect on the consequences. Reflect on the consequences. Notice, if you will, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is writing to the Corinthians who were a pagan group. They had come out of paganism. Corinth was sin city. It was like the Las Vegas of that time. And he writes to them to warn them because many of the Corinthians were tempted to go back into the idol temple. You know, the uh, there was an expression in Corinth, we know this from extra-biblical literature, it's called to Corinthianize. To Corinthianize was to have sex with a prostitute. And so Corinth was synonymous with prostitution. So a lot of the Corinthians came out of this sordid lifestyle. Many of them were tempted to flirt with the past. And so Paul has to remind them from Israel's history, look out for the consequences. He says, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. In other words, God led Israel through a cloud. He got them through the Red Sea. They were all baptized, verse 2, into Moses. In other words, Moses was their leader in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate, 
ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. In other words, Israel was privileged. God gave Israel Moses. God led them by a pillar of fire. He led them by the cloud. He got them out of Egypt. They went through the sea. They were privileged. They had all this stuff. But notice what he says here to the Corinthians in verse 5, nevertheless. Whenever you hear the word nevertheless, you're in trouble. God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, why is he reminding them of this? He says it in verse 6. <clears throat> now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Paul is saying, look, I want you to learn from Israel's history. Israel had all this privilege. They squandered the privilege. God was not pleased with the Israelites. And he says, I want you to learn what God did to the Israelites. In spite of what they had, God punished them for their sin. He's saying, think about their consequences. He's reminding them of that. And then he gives some examples of what the Israelites did in the wilderness, why God was not pleased with them. He says in verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angels. He's saying, guys, think about what Israel did and think about their consequences because he says again in verse 11, he repeats it, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. In other words, learn from history, learn from the consequences of other people and what they've suffered. And so here's a principle when dealing with temptation. Ask yourself this question. If I do this, what are the consequences? Now, I agree, not all consequences are equal. Sometimes consequences are very minimal. No one knows about them. Sometimes consequences are devastating. The world will know about them you got to reflect on the consequences. If I do this, what is the consequence? Now listen, you may not always see the consequence right away. But there's a principle in the Bible, there is a law that you cannot mock. It is like the law of gravity. You could get up on a building and say, I don't believe in the law of gravity. Jump. It doesn't matter whether you believe in that law. That law is reality. Here is the law. Whatever a man sows, he will also what? Reap. That is an irrefutable, unshakable, undeniable law that if you violate, you're going to pay. But here's the deal. You don't always see the consequence right away. Sometimes we reap more than we sow and later than we sow. But there's always a consequence. At minimal, my fellowship with God is broken when I sin deliberately. And then there were other consequences. You know, I taught students in Miami, Florida years ago. I taught ninth and 10th graders. And I loved it. I taught them the Bible. It was a challenge at times. And we were going through the study of temptation. And I asked this question to the students. It was written down and they had to answer it. And here was the question. When Potiphar's wife caught Joseph alone in the house, he ran out. And then I asked the students, in what types of situations is it best to flee from temptations? And here is what one student said, and I love it. Primarily, I would think the main sin to run from is lust because you can mess up your whole life by moments of pleasure, end quote. That was a student. He understand consequences. 
reflect on the consequences. That will help serve as a deterrent when you're thinking about doing things. Well, number seven on our list, and that is this, avoid being overconfident or proud. After talking to the Corinthians in chapter 10 about how the, the Israelites sinned in the wilderness, and that's an example for us, Paul concludes in 1 Corinthians 10 by saying this to the Corinthians, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't, what, fall. One of the reasons why, if we're not careful, that we can give into temptation is we get overconfident, we get pompous, we get proud, and we think, you know what, I'm above this temptation. And I get it. There are some temptations that you probably would never commit. I am never tempted to be a pedophile. That is absolutely abhorrent. That is, that is destructive. It is absolutely repugnant to me. And I have anger when I hear about that. And by the way, God can forgive a pedophile. We get emotional about that, but the reality is this, God can forgive all sin. But you know what? I probably never get tempted by that. But you know what? I got to be careful that I don't have an attitude that says, you know what? I'm above this. I'm above that. I can walk into situations, and you know what? If I'm not careful and I get smug and self-reliant, I can fall into sins. Because listen, I've talked to Christians throughout the years who have said, you know, I thought I overcame that temptation, and I dropped my guard, and you know what? I fell back into it. Or you got a person who's struggled with alcohol, and they've been clean 20 years, and they let down their guard, and all of a sudden they get tempted with alcohol, and boom, they fall. Sometimes things that tempted you 20 years ago all of a sudden can rear their ugly heads. You ever have that happen before? I've had people that had cigarette addictions. They overcame it. They hadn't smoked a cigarette in 20 years. And then all of a sudden they say, man, out of the blue I was driving and I craved a cigarette out of nowhere. Now for me it's a Debbie cake. It's never a cigarette. You know, that's... Don't be overconfident. Don't be smug. Number eight in our little list as we wind down, control your thought life. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Romans 12 says that we're to renew our mind. Listen, you and I know that temptation, it starts in the mind. The battlefield is the mind. If you win the victory in your mind, you will win your victory over temptation. Because listen, ultimately, all of the fiery darts of Satan, the flesh, and the world come to us through our minds. And listen, that is the battleground. That is the civil war that happens in our mind. That is the Gettysburg. We battle in our head, and we got to make a decision. What are we going to do? Now, let me say this. It's not a sin to get a thought of temptation in your mind. The Bible never says it's a sin to be tempted because Jesus was tempted at all points, Hebrews 4, and yet he was without sin. So it's not a sin to be tempted. But listen, it's whether or not I milk the thought. It's whether or not I fantasize, whatever it is. It may not be sexual. It could be you want to get revenge on a person on your job. It could be bitterness. It could be unforgiveness. It could be pride you got to deal with the thought life. How many like playing games? You ever heard of the game Whack-A-Mole? You ever been to a game room, you know, where they got the pinballs and they got this game Whack-A-Mole? You've played it before where in those little holes, those little creatures will pop up and you got this mallet and what do you do? You hit the hole and you push down the particular creature that comes up and they come up at different times like this and you're bam, 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 bam. 
You know what? Sometimes that's our thought life. We get besieged with a thought, the fiery dart of the evil one. Bam, we got to whack it down. Next one, we got to whack down. And listen, what you feed your mind is going to either starve temptation or it's going to generate temptation. You're looking at porn, you're going to have a problem with lust. You're looking at anger. If you're reading novels or this, that, or the other that is fueling the fire, you got to watch what you feed your mind. That's why it's so critical we're in the Word of God. We're renewing our mind to Scripture. There's an aphorism that people have often quoted before. You've heard it. It says this, quote, Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. It all starts with a thought. You are where you are today because of how you think. Don't blame everybody else. You are where you are because of your thinking. And you know what? Many times as Christians, we have stinking thinking. Number nine, rely on God's power. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 says, But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now listen, at salvation, we're all indwelt by the Spirit. If you come to Christ, the Bible says the Holy Spirit sets up residence in your life. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But watch this. There is a difference between being indwelt by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. Indwelt by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 says that we're to be controlled by the Spirit. We're to be filled by the Spirit. Now when you hear the word filled, you think of the filling of a cup. That's not the Greek word. The Greek word in Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit, which by the way is a command. It's not an option for the Christian. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. The word fill doesn't mean to fill a cup. The word in the Greek means control. In Acts chapter 4, it says that when the disciples preached the resurrection, watch this, it says the religious leaders were filled with jealousy. What does it mean they were filled with jealousy? They were under the control of that emotion. So to be filled with the Spirit simply means you're under the control of the Spirit. So at any given moment, you're either controlled by the flesh or you're controlled by the Spirit. The Bible says we're not only indwelt by the Spirit, but we're to be controlled by the Spirit. And what happens when we're controlled by the Spirit? Galatians 5 says we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. By the way, when you see those jumbo jets, isn't it amazing how they get off the ground? You know, those jets, they are subject to a law called the law of gravity. The law of gravity keeps those jets on the ground. But you know what? There's another law that supersedes the law of gravity. It is the law of aerodynamics. And you know what happens when a plane comes off the runway with the turbine engines and the wings? That law of gravity is superseded by the law of aerodynamics. And the Bible says that we have a new law. It is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8. That law enables us to what? Overcome the flesh. Number 10, flee. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. But you don't understand. I want to play with it. He says, get out, flee. 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, he says to Timothy, flee youthful lusts. Now, the word flee in the Greek, fuge, it means fugitive. When it comes to sin, be a fugitive. You know, Joseph, he didn't say to Potiphar's wife, well, let's sit down over tea and talk about what you want to do. As soon as she said, lay with me, you know what he did? He ran out of Dodge. He got out of there. Why? Because he knew he was a man and he knew he would be subject to that. So he fled. Listen, too often we flirt with temptation rather than flee temptation. Too often we're like the moth that gets as close to the fire as we can without getting burned. Two more here real quick. Maintain fellowship with God's people. 
Hebrews 10 says, We are not to forsake our assembling together as is the habit of some. And then Hebrews chapter 3 says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We all can get a sinful, unbelieving heart. How do we avoid that? He says in verse 13 of Hebrews 3, But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. So, watch this, that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We got to encourage each other. This is why we gather on Sunday. This is why we gather in small groups. This is why we gather in discipleship, why we gather in prayer. Why? It is to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, mutual accountability. I need you. You need me. We need accountability. Iron sharpens iron. See, we got to avoid disconnecting from the fellowship. You ever watch those National Geographic shows? You will notice that when a lion or a tiger goes after its prey, what it will do is it will isolate the one animal that is away from the pack because the animal that is away from the pack is more vulnerable to the attacks of the lion or the tiger. And that's exactly what Satan wants to do. He wants to get you out of fellowship. Now, we're all going to miss, but God wants us to consistently be together. Why? Because iron sharpens iron. Number 12, take care of your physical health. You say, that's not spiritual. Absolutely, it is. Neglect your, spiritual, uh, your physical health and watch how it affects temptation. When you are tired, when you are fatigued, you know what happens? You are more vulnerable to temptation. Take care of yourself. First Kings 19, we don't have time to go in it, but Elijah was discouraged running from Jezebel. What did God do? He had him sleep and he gave him food. He gave him angel food cake. He had him sleep, he gave him food. He had him sleep, he gave him food. Listen, if you want to avoid temptation, I'm not saying that this cures at all, but what I am saying is take care of your physical health, eating, exercising, getting proper rest. And then finally, number 13, resist the devil. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this, we are to stand firm in our faith and we are to resist the devil. Why? He is the tempter. What does it mean to resist the devil? Use the word of God. And you know what? Too many of us, including myself, we allow the devil to push us around. We allow the devil to push our family around. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are to put on the armor of God and we are to stand against the wiles of the devil. Sometimes I have to speak out loud. In the name of Jesus Christ, I resist you, Satan. Now, some Christians, I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus, as if they say that one time, the devil's going to flee. Listen, the devil is not that stupid. You got to take your stand. You got to know the word of God, quote the word of God, and sometimes you got to speak out loud when you are being besieged by the devil. So let me ask you a question as we close. What are your top three temptations? Now, here's the good news. In spite of all these principles, guess what? Mike Nimmer still sins. I still blow it, and so do you. And you know what the Bible says? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what? His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So even though I blow it again and again, God still forgives me. But listen, I don't want to take for granted the grace of God. Even though where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, I don't want to have the mentality, well, it doesn't matter. I might as well just yield to temptation because God forgives me. That's not the attitude. But 
As I strive in the power of the Spirit to overcome temptation, when I blow it, the Bible says God forgives me over and over and over again. You cannot outstrip the grace of God. Your temptation and sin is like a drop of water. God's grace is like the Pacific Ocean. So what are your top three temptations? Are you walking in victory? Are you seeking to avoid them? Let's pray.